providing real solutions for real industry challenges. Welcome to FNF Unplugged, the talk of the title industry. Well, thanks everyone for joining us again here today on another installment of FNF Unplugged. And today I'm especially happy to have join us a good friend and colleague of many years, Howard Turk. Howard uh, is the CEO and founder of Turk and Company. And Turk and Company uh, has done uh, business process improvement for title agents for a number of years. But in the last two to three years, Howard has become preeminent, I believe, uh, is a safe thing to say, in the United States in regard to title agency merger and acquisition, and both for title agents who are being acquired and title agents who are looking to acquire other title agents. And so especially happy to have him here today. Uh, As I've often uh, said when Howard and I are together, that Howard's one of the few people I know who is an attorney in two countries, here and in his uh, native Canada. And Howard, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you for inviting me. And, uh, you know, a question we standardly ask uh, our guests is, how did you get into this business and how did you get to this point? Because probably when you were back in that one-room schoolhouse in Ontario, that uh, in first grade, you were not telling uh, your first grade teacher that, gee, I really want to be involved in the merger and acquisition area of the title insurance industry. I think that's a, a fair assumption. Back then, there was no title industry in Canada. So, uh, <laughs> there wouldn't have been an option anyway. I started out as a real estate lawyer in Toronto and, uh, in the early nineties, uh, was, a was working, uh, we had actually the highest volume conveyancing law firm in the country. And that brought me to the attention of one of the underwriters when they were looking at entering the international market. I was at that time on the executive of the Canadian Bar Association and actually part of the group trying to block them from getting licensed. But one day, I think the light went off and it occurred to me that, you know, everybody was so scared of what the Americans might do to the way the Canadians process real estate transactions that there must be something to it. And I ended up becoming one of their founders and or first initial members and joined them ultimately sold my firm, took my relationships with banks that was driving our business and brought that into the uh, title company. And we helped grow that from a startup to a 900 employee company with a, a very large top line revenue. After uh, many years there, I helped them out in the UK, replicating the same model by looking at what would happen when a, uh, a risk taker was introduced into a workflow that did not tolerate risk. I helped them out in Australia as well. And then they moved me to California about 16 years ago. Shortly after I arrived in California, I realized that working there was not what I wanted to do. Got to really back to my basics and my roots, which was running my own business. The mandate that I had, and I think what I'd learned in all the years of running a law firm, which is basically the same thing as a title agency, and then working for one of the underwriters, was uh, it gave me an appreciation for the value that independent title agents bring to our country. And uh, I'm now a citizen. I really believe in that, Chuck. And it's uh, I started out helping the independents by teaching them what I had learned by working for one of the big guys. That business rapidly grew to a team of about 14 people. And we ran around the country doing um, workflow optimization, SOP creation, technology optimization, that sort of thing. 
We have a sales arm that helps teach title agency sales reps how to sell, as well as a cultural development arm that improves communication skills for title companies and law firms. That business grew. We got involved in all things title, uh, including helping place reinsurance for a lot of the regionals, BPO processing with the right vendors in India who actually know what they're doing, and many other things. About three or four years ago, I kept getting calls from private equity companies to help them out with due diligence in the title industry. And it occurred to me that title is an underbanked business and that the same mindset that we had of trying to help independents is just as essential, if not more essential, when it comes to succession planning and mergers and acquisitions. So we formed a... uh, a venture and brought on a bunch of licensed investment bankers. And we are now a uh, fully licensed investment bank that is SEC and FINRA compliant. And that's important because it means that we're, our standard is, is quite high uh, and that we have uh, authorities to uh, respond to. And our mandate and our goal for myself and my team is to make sure that independents are treated fairly when it comes to selling or buying title agencies and that they don't get taken advantage of by uh, some of the some of the people who are trying to take advantage of them or profit from them not having access to the right information. Well, and I think your background, you know, at, like mine, uh, having run our own businesses in title and settlement and also worked for underwriters, it certainly gives a very broad perspective as to uh, what our industry is like throughout the United States. And again, as I've mentioned, uh, you and your company have been preeminent in this mergers and acquisition space. And it seems that uh, the last, what, two, uh, two and a half to three years, mergers and acquisitions in our industry have gone at a pace uh, unlike I've ever seen. There was some activity back in the 90s, but nothing like we've seen here recently as to the acquisition and merger of uh, title agencies and also, of course, of investment funds coming into especially the mid-cap underwriters and taking either ownership position or investment positions. What do you see, you know, looking forward here into 2022 and 2023? Do you think this fevered activity is going to remain? Absolutely. If you look at the drivers of the increased M&A activity, those dynamics have not changed. So the reason M&A has become so active in title is a function of, in part because of the aging population of the ownership base of a lot of the independents who are approaching retirement. So we have that subset. It used to be that that group could only sell to the underwriters, and there was a small club of them who uh, collectively had set kind of a bar in terms of what even a multiple would be ordinary or what terms would be ordinary for a title agency acquisition. And that made a lot of sense because they all wanted the remittance and, of course, now the CPL revenues as well. Uh, We spent a lot of time working with a a list of uh, private equity agencies, private equity firms, educating them on the dynamics of a title company, how it works, and explaining and really translating the title agency business and title underwriters, because we've sold underwriters as well, in terms that they understand. And it's almost like a a translation process more than anything else. 
But in a nutshell, there's a value to a title agency in having a reoccurring revenue stream, which is not dissimilar to the recurring revenue stream that many private equity firms covet. So we spent a lot of time doing that. That's one of the drivers that has not changed. Another driver is, you know, there's all different types of sellers. And I'll speak about buyers afterwards. So one of the drivers of sales is the age of ownership. Another one is fear of disintermediation by technology. And we see that with a lot of the smaller independents who just are having trouble keeping up with some of the very slick tools that the larger companies have. Not by larger, I don't mean underwriters only. I mean also larger independents. And it's very hard for them to compete with that. At the same time, we also know that uh, technology can improve your margins. Knowing which outsourcer, for example, to use and what workflow you should engage with. These are things that are going to help you survive as time goes on. So the desire to not be disintermediated by technology is still prevalent. That has not changed. And um, those are two of the factors that will help contribute towards the uh, the ongoing activity. At the same time, I feel like we've woken up a monster in the private equity world. And we have a list of right now, a little over a thousand of them that we know are active. And these people know us, we know them. They know that when we bring a company to them that we've done some vetting of it, we're not gonna throw spaghetti on the wall. And that's important because they're now looking to us as a source of deals. These guys only make money if they can find investments to place. So that desire has not changed as well. I think between those three factors we're seeing a good chunk of what's changing the industry. Well, and I think that's so critical to understand uh, because uh, we've been such an introspective industry for so long. And uh, like this podcast that we do, we have about 30 to 40 dedicated listeners from Europe to our podcast. And uh, in a conversation I had with Mike Nolan, who is now our CEO at FNF, that I asked Mike, uh, it's like, why do you think we have these European listeners? And he said, I think it may be some of those investors trying to understand what it is we do and who we are and how we operate. I can't tell you how many uh, 4 a.m. calls I've had with, with uh, <laughs> firms in Europe. Sometimes I feel like I start work at lunchtime in Europe. I'm in California. So you're, Mike is absolutely correct. The, uh, there are some large players from Europe that have, that have already placed investments. I mean, one of them is, uh, and it's public, is Munich Re from Germany. They're a $42, $43 billion market cap company, and they now own, Amer- uh, they own an underwriter in, uh, that we helped uh, help them acquire and re-domesticate and expand. There are many others that are, we have a buy side client right now, as a matter of fact, that is also from Europe, and we're actively seeking a, uh, a certain type of title agency to fit their needs based upon their spend. And that's one where they're looking to monetize their their economic output, for lack of a better word. But aside that, I mean, money is global. The world has become a smaller place. And a lot of people are looking to invest and believe in the value of American real estate. And buying into a title agency is a good way to do that. Well, and your role in uh, assisting on these mergers, acquisitions, sales, purchases, and uh, I remember back uh, when the agency that I headed, it was actually owned by a regional law firm, was acquired by, well, it was Land America, which isn't around anymore, but uh, one of the nation's leading uh, title underwriters, 
and it was a cumbersome process. It was uh, a lot of fits and starts as to how things move forward because everybody was sort of feeling the way about how to do this. And could you talk about, you know, what you do? And there, you know, to be fair, you know, there are others, some other people out there who do the same types of things you do. I don't think to your knowledge, level of knowledge, and certainly not to the uh, extent that you do. But can you talk about a little bit of what you do at Turk and Company and uh, the really significantly enhanced value you bring in regard to these transactions? Absolutely, Chuck. I mean, there are thousands of investment banks in the United States. So we start with that to park that thought um, and then park the thought that about 40% of all transactions never close. What we do, there's different philosophies as to how an investment bank should operate. We believe that anything worth doing is worth doing properly. And because we're title people first and investment bankers second, we start off our process through a very, very deep dive into a title agency's inner operations. And the reason we do that is because we believe that surprises are very good at birthdays, but not very good at, in part of a due diligence on an acquisition. So we want to uncover all the good, bad, and the ugly first. We do that through a questionnaire that we've developed over the last decade that has certain metrics in it. And I'll give you an example of one. We have a ratio of escrow losses to top-line revenue. So we know in a healthy title agency what percentage of a dollar value of escrow losses should relate to the top-line revenue. If your agency deviates from that, then that tells us there must be something else wrong. So we're going to look a little deeper, find out what kind of escrow losses you have. If you have a whole bunch of the exact same ones, we're going to ask you for your training log. If you don't have a training log, we're going to ask you for your SOPs. If you don't have SOPs, we're going to have a different conversation. <laughs> so, um, and and the reason we do that, Chuck, and, and that's just an example. There's much, much more that we do. We'll look at at um, your escrow reconciliations. We'll look to see who the uncashed checks were to, because we want to know if there's a bunch of checks that are payable to HOAs that haven't sent around for 90 days, not cashed, and that's a claim in the making. So we want to look very carefully and make sure that this is a clean title company, that when we bring it to market, it represents our brand, and that the buyers that we bring this to know that they can trust us, that it's going to be a good, clean deal, and it's not going to be one where there's skeletons lurking in the closet. So again, our process begins with a very deep dive into... Um, what goes on in the agency. From there, we build a financial model. The financial model goes back usually about three years, but we'll also look at business mix. We'll look at corporate concentration. We'll look at a bunch of other factors that we know buyers typically want to see. From there, we will customize our list. And we have really a, a variety of lists. We have a, a, a strategic list, which has about a thousand people on it. And those are people that are in the industry that are buying not just the underwriters, but we have the underwriter list. And then we have a financial list as well of the financial buyers of those who are investing in title companies. So we start off, once we have the financial model built, we create something called the SIM, which is a confidential information memorandum. The SIM is really the Bible or the story of the title agency. It's very comprehensive. Um, we then take the, we create something called a teaser, which is a, uh, it's like a summary of the agency in a way that doesn't describe it so that anybody can identify it. In other words, it'll describe the profile, but it'll be written, it's written in such a way that you'll never figure out who the agency is. It'll say East Coast agency, 212 employees, X number of dollars, EBITDA, 
X number of dollars, top line revenue, business mix, 75% residential purchase, 25% refi, or if it's commercial, we go into all that. And we then distribute that to the market along with a blank NDA. So one of the things that uh, we know, because we're in the industry, is that while we really admire and treasure our colleagues, there are some in the title industry that are unscrupulous and have different levels of integrity. So there are some that we want to trust and some that we don't want to trust. And the last thing we want to ever have happen is have a buyer or a competitor figure out that a certain title agency is for sale. So we have different different safeguards built into our process to make sure that cannot happen. First is that the teaser does not identify them. It's sufficiently generic. And of course, the seller has an opportunity to sign off and approve it. We then get NDAs that are signed in blank. If they're interested, the seller then looks at those and says, you know what, I don't trust that guy, even if they are signing an NDA. From there, we spoon feed them a little more information, and that's the confidential information memorandum, which again, doesn't tell everything. It gives them enough information to decide whether they want to proceed uh, with further investigation. And then we solicit something called an IOI, which is an indication of interest. From there, we whittle those down to the groups that we really feel we want to work with, and we'll invite uh, usually a group of about 10 to 12 to submit LOIs, which are letters of intent. And from there, we work with our seller to ensure that the uh, letter of intent is one they want to work with. And we may go some, maybe some back and forth on there. And then we enter the due diligence phase. What a lot of sellers underestimate is just how much work goes into the due diligence phase. That can take a long time. But on our process, because we've front-loaded it, by asking all these questions, we can build a data room that we open up to a buyer subsequent to an LOI that really answers all their questions because we know what they're going to ask. From there, we proceed to a transaction and sign what we call a definitive agreement. Well, you know, that's hugely helpful. And of course, I'm shocked that there might be people who are not completely scrupulous in regard to the purchase or sale of a title agency. That's amazing to me to think of that would happen in our industry. But uh, that being said, and to your point about, you know, the, the work that's involved in this, that it's not something that you don't just put a for sale sign in the window. If someone were interested in selling a title agency, are there three or four tips that you'd be willing to share as far as, you know, due diligence, you know, something beyond just slapping a fresh coat of paint on the place that they should look at before they really start to get involved in this. Because as we know, and I know, I mean, from your experience, so many of these are family-run businesses. And family-run businesses run a little differently from a... um, publicly traded uh, uh, organization. So, you know, are there, you know, three or four tips that if someone were looking to sell and likewise, if someone were thinking of buying an agency, are there a few things they should just keep in mind before they even start to shop around? Sure. Let's start with the sellers. So, I mean, one of the starting points, it's not always about the numbers, but the numbers of course matter quite a bit. So you want to make sure that your financials are in good order. They can be audited. That's always helpful, but they don't necessarily need to be. But you are going to need to clean it up. So one of the things we see that's a risk factor is financials that are a mess, where they're not organized, or where the owners are using the company as their personal piggy bank. That's a mistake. 
And we can adjust some of that. So if you have simple things like you know, spouses lease on their car, uh, kids' cell phones, those kind of things are easy to pull out and you want to do that. But sometimes we have more exotic and complicated things. Mistress's apartment, like those kind of things, you want to take those out. And uh, because all this, all this comes out, remember the due diligence process is very invasive. Uh, one of the things that we tell all of our clients is that there are three things that you cannot hide. And those are the sun, the moon, and the truth. We will see everything. If there's anything you don't want us to see, clean it up, uh, tell us so we can create a narrative around it. It's also important to be very truthful with us because we'll figure it out in the end anyway. And we can, there's often a narrative around that can be created to explain things that look they might like they might be unseemly otherwise. So getting your financials in order are probably number one. Number two, ensuring that there's no outstanding litigation or claims, uh, that that's all nailed down is also important. Having proper standard operating procedures really shows a lot about how your quality is. I think also having a realistic expectation of value and not being just because you have someone that wants to buy your agency doesn't mean that you've won the lottery. People buy agencies are, are looking to grow them, but they're not looking to get robbed either. So being realistic on your expectations will save everybody a lot of time. Some of them will come to us and have ask us for a value opinion. And we do offer a product that does that where we'll give someone a uh, a rough assessment of the value of the company based on a high level questionnaire. We're going to look at things like their business mix. We'll look at their financials. We'll create a small financial model. Uh, we'll look at their corporate concentration issues. We'll look at their footprint. More importantly, we'll look at their margins and how sustainable they are. Uh, those are the kind of things. Having a clean shop is really important. To my mind, uh, where we are now, and you see this uh, more acutely on a daily basis, it seems to me that uh, the two types of uh, people who are in title and settlement today are people who are looking to buy or sell uh, an agency or those who are who have not yet decided to buy or sell an agency. It seems to be very rampant, and it seems to be at all levels and in all parts of the country and at all sizes of different uh, agencies, some quite large, some what I call county seat type oh. operations. Um, and you're seeing that too, I, I know. Well, we see all kinds. I mean, we're, we're, um, we do well in uh, selling companies where the EBITDA is $4 million and up. Uh, our typical client is in the 7 to $12 million EBITDA range. Um, that's what the market is looking to us for. But at the same time, remember, Chuck, that Every business has a why, and uh, the why we set this up is not to help rich people get richer. It's to help independents monetize the value of their life's work. So we're very eager and keen to help some of the smaller agencies. Sometimes we'll even do it without without fees, and we just say this is what you should do to help sell your agency or plug them into people that we know that are buying roll-ups, um, and we have a separate workflow for roll-ups that's smaller that works from an economic perspective, a little bit differently. But we really want to help people make sure that they don't get taken advantage of in the process. One of the things that strikes me as ironic when it comes to the smaller agencies, especially, is that these people have built their livelihood really on the strength of consumers choosing not to do a FISBO. 
And on the strength of a consumer going to a professional like a realtor who then has a relationship with a title company and they then send that deal to that title agency. And it strikes me as peculiar that oftentimes the owners of the title agency think, well, I've made my living on the strength of people not doing FISBO. Now it's time for me to sell my agency. I'm going to do a FISBO. Who do I know? And off they go. And it's a little bit different. I mean, it's a little bit like if you were to imagine yourself sitting on the porch of your house, having a nice tea and someone walks in front of your house with their dog, looks at you, Chuck, and says, hey, Chuck, I like your house. I'd like to buy it. And you say, great, let's set up a contract and sign it and we'll sell it to you. Versus that same person asking you that same question and you say, well, tell you what, I'm going to hire a professional. I'm going to get a market value evaluation of it. I'm going to stage it. I'm going to market this company, create flyers. I'm going to put it on the internet and expose it to the wide market. And you, my neighbor, can be included in that process. Which of those two scenarios do you think is going to produce a better offer from that same guy? Well, I think your point is so well taken. And of course, there's the old adage in uh, uh, those of us who are attorneys that the attorney represents uh, himself in the courtroom as a fool for a client. And, you know, and to your story, anecdotally, our discussion anecdotally that uh, a, a partner of mine many years ago bought a very expensive house in Cleveland, Ohio. This guy had probably closed 25,000, 30,000 residential transactions in his life, uh, another uh, uh, four or 5,000 commercial transactions. He bought a very expensive house and he did not get a termite inspection. And guess what? It had termites and right. significant termite damage. So, yes, uh, I think uh, it's just it's great advice to have a professional. No one should do brain surgery on themselves. And, you know, something too to sort of wrap things up here as we get towards um, you know the end of our podcast. But, you know, they're not all marriages are made in heaven. And. Now, what do you see, you know, as I call it, you know, D-Day plus 120? You've sold your agency or you've bought a new agency. But now you're two, three, four months later. What are key things to making sure that uh, what it is that um, one intended to accomplish, in fact, is accomplished? People buy agencies for so many different reasons. It's a little tricky to answer that. One of the things that we're seeing right now is a trend because controlled business laws are changing across the nation, people with captive volume are more prone to buying agencies now than they were in the past because they can add their volume to them. So for that kind of a, of a deal, the question is going to be making sure that you're ramping up the agency correctly, properly, that you have the right infrastructure in place to do that. So that would be scenario number one, not overloading the agency. If it's a small roll-up where it's a smaller agency being acquired by a bigger one, then you want to make sure that you've got some training or ideally you've found an agency that their staff work on the same platform as yours. Uh, people who work on SoftPro don't work the same way on RamQuest uh, or Qualia or any of the other ones. They, they all have their own mechanisms. So you want to make sure that you have a unanimity of workflow and a unanimity of um, production platforms. Probably the two of the more important things. And I guess the third thing is an understanding of cultural alignment. Cultural alignment is so important. It's really, when we look at what creates a good deal, the cultural alignment is as important as the monetary uh, consequences. Those are probably some of the most important things. But um, in terms of what happens subsequent, a lot of people buy agencies and leave them alone. 
it depends on how you structure your deal or what the buyer's motivations are. We very commonly see, especially where they're the owner of the agency being sold is younger, uh, scenarios where they retain or roll equity up to the tune of about 40%, in which case they are basically seeking an investor who becomes their partner and can help them finance technology development, opening up more branches, expanding through roll-ups and that sort of thing. It really is, is very different depending on the scenario. Well, and you know, I know that you and I have talked about, especially just in recent months or maybe in the last couple of years, because in so many parts of the country, title and settlement is done or title or settlement is done uh, through law firms. But we're starting to see acquisition of law firms. And that was something that, you know, going back a few years ago, and, and again, as, as an attorney, just didn't commonly happen at all, or in fact, was sometimes thought to be almost impossible. Can you just touch base on that as far as what you're seeing or hearing and, and interest from law firms about selling their business? I can. I mean, we're, we're, um, we're continually hearing more and more about that. Uh, there's, I think, one or two states that actually passed legislation that legalizes non-lawyers owning a law firm. So that's a, a good change and one I think that's for the benefit of consumers. As that trend continues, it is likely that we'll see other professional service firms acquiring law firms. And by those, I mean like the accounting firms and whatnot. Uh, so it's definitely a trend. Whether title companies will then become uh, acquire law firms in UPL states is a really good question. It really depends. Well, certainly each state has its own rules, as we know. Those of us who are in practice in multiple states, as you and I are, and in your case, multiple countries, the Supreme Court's Bar Association's uh, ethics rules are, are all very different. But I, I think it's an interesting trend that this is starting to move forward because I think 10 or 15 years ago, if you had told someone that, uh, well, someone is interested in buying your law firm, they'd have just looked at you and shook their head. You know, it's not dissimilar to this. There's, there's a, an internal debate in the title industry as to whether title agencies should be owned only by title companies versus investors. And similar, you know, should law firms only be owned by lawyers or can other people own them? I don't know. I mean, there I can see the pros and cons either way. One of the nice things about selling your agency to an underwriter, for example, is that they're going to understand your business and they're going to know they're going to have the financial upside of capturing the remittance, especially if they make it a direct. There's a lot of really interesting uh, dynamics going on and parallels between that. And I think we're in early days of what could be going on within the legal services industry. But remember that lawyers, I'm a reformed lawyer, lawyers fancy themselves as different than everybody else, but they're really just a service provider that's focusing on one niche and that can be sold. Well, I think this has been a great dialogue. I really appreciate your time uh, here, Howard. I think uh, it's a great benefit to everyone. And, and you and I have been on panels together and have spoken uh, even in live presentations in this last year. And uh, the seats are always filled. I think this is something that everybody is thinking about. And again, I uh, can't thank you enough uh, for your time and uh, wisdom and comments today. Is there anything that uh, perhaps you didn't touch on that uh, you'd like to uh, end with? Well, remember, Chuck, at heart, I'm a title nerd. So if you ask me title questions, I won't stop talking. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Howard. And thanks again to everyone for listening here today at FNF Unplugged. Hope you all have a great day. 
If you have questions, comments, or would like us to feature a specific topic, email fnfeducation at fnf.com. Thanks for downloading FNF Unplugged, a presentation of the FNF family of companies. All rights reserved. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent, including Fidelity National Financial or its directors. Please seek legal or financial advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein.